On February 1st, 2021, in Myanmar, the military took control of the government in what is being now called an alleged coup. But why should you care? If a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, does it make any sound? Why should you care? Well, maybe the real question you and I should be asking is why does everyone else care? Why does nations like China and America and Russia and India, Australia, Japan, why are they so concerned with what's happening in Myanmar today? Hey, it's Lucas Scrobot, and you're listening to The Lucas Scrobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. Today, we are breaking down the big why. The why should we care about the coup that has happened in Myanmar that is ongoing with widespread protests. But what we'll really talk about, instead of why should you care, because you should care, But the way that we are going to see why we should care about this today is by seeing why the massive powers in the earth care about this, why America is actually pretty interested in what's happening in Myanmar, and why nations like China and India are also very keen about this outcome in Myanmar. But before we can get into the details of the why, we are going to very fastly, too long, didn't read, hit the basics 101 of what has happened in Myanmar. Because you know what? I like you. I'm not checking on Myanmar news every day. I don't know who the players are. Well, the first basic thing that you need to know about Myanmar is that the main religion is Buddhism. And there's many different ethnic groups, one in particular, which is going to come into play Uh, in a large part in this story, which is the Rohingya Muslims. Now, Myanmar as a country gained independence from Britain in 1948, and it was ruled using armed forces from 1962 to 2011. So it was under military rule and regime for a good part of 50, 60 years. When, in 2011, a new government ushered in the return of civilian rule under what is called the National League for Democracy, or the NLD. And who is the prized leader of the NLD? Well, it is Aung San Suu Kyi. Now, Aung San Suu Kyi might not be a name that you're familiar with. I was not, so it either shows my ignorance or it shows that Well, we can't all follow everything that's happening around the world at every turn, and that's okay. But Aung San Suu Kyi, in 1991, she was awarded a Nobel Peace Prize while under house arrest in Myanmar or Burma, and she was hailed as an outstanding example of power to the powerless, which is a power to the powerless is the hat tip to Havel's Uh, essay, Power to the Powerless. And so she is quite a famous figure. She is one that stood up to the the tyranny of the military regimes and pushed for democracy in Myanmar. And she was held under house arrest for about 15 years, which is 
quite a long time to be in house arrest. So she's quite the celebrated figure in Myanmar. In 2015, she led the NLD to victory in Myanmar's first openly contested election in 25 years. But this is where it gets a little confusing, at least for me. According to the Myanmar's constitution, she is forbidden to actually be the president because she has children who are foreign nationals. They hold dual citizenships with other countries. So that's kind of clear. There could be a conflict of interest if her her kids have citizenship with another country and she becomes president. In order to get around this, they created a official title for her, which is state counselor. And she's 75 years old at this point and is widely seen as the de facto leader of Myanmar. However, the actual president of Myanmar was Win Mayant, who was in power up until the point of February 1st. So what happened leading up to February 1st? Well, there was an election in 2020, November of 2020. And after the election, there was allegations of widespread fraud. I think we've heard this story before, widespread fraud. And within the constitution of Myanmar, it is set up in such a way that says the military always has to have a check and a balance. It always has to have at least 25% control over the government. Well, as it went through its electoral process, the the government essentially said, well, we, we find no fraud. We can't uh, substantiate the allegations of fraud, and therefore this goes through. But under their constitution in chapter 11 of the 2008 constitution, there are laws written that makes it legal for the military if they see a an issue with the government or they fear that the the nation could split in two can step in and seize control for a a certain period of time however not one leader not one person can be in control but the the government can seize control legally over the country and that is what happened on February 1st But this is where it gets confusing. After she became president or de facto leader in 2015, there began a genocide against the Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar. And she was over the country during this time. And, you know, it's confusing because here she is, the symbol of, of peace and standing against tyranny. And yet she herself is now overseeing a genocide. Now, it's a little bit more complex than that because the military was playing a large role in this genocide. But nonetheless, she was called to the UN to stand trial at the International Court of Justice in 2019, where she denied outright genocide, and yet she defended the military. Here is the clip. It cannot be ruled out that disproportionate force was used by members of the defense services, in some cases, in disregard of international humanitarian law. Can there be genocidal intent on the part of a state that actively investigates, prosecutes, and punishes soldiers and officers who are accused of wrongdoing? 
So she admits here in this clip that there was wrongdoing. She admits that there was overstepping and that they did not follow international law. And during this time, there's hundreds of villages burnt to the ground, hundreds killed, and, and thousands, hundreds of thousands of Rohingyan Muslims pushed into Bangladesh as refugees. Now, as I said, Myanmar is a Buddhist nation, and the majority of the people really do not like this minority of Muslims in Myanmar. Here is where the layers get a little deeper. You just heard her defend the military. And who was leading the military? Who was in charge? Well, it was General Ming Ang Holang. Now, this is the man, General Ming, who was is the, the face that is leading this alleged coup. And at the same time, he was one of the generals that was accused of the Myanmar genocide. As humans, we like things to be clear-cut and easy. We like to have a face of a good guy and a face of a bad guy. And in this case, it seems like it would be pretty easy on the onset to say democracy, good, military, bad. But we can look past further layers and we see actually it's not so clear-cut. Because in the eyes of the military, in the eyes of General Ming, it wasn't a coup. They were following their constitution and they're following their constitutional law. So they're arguing, say, well, this wasn't a coup. We're actually just acting in accordance with our constitution to defend democracy. And maybe, maybe that is actually true. Maybe it is true that there was widespread voter fraud. Wouldn't it be then the military's responsibility to make sure that democracy was defended rather than just going with the, the, the party that quote-unquote stands for democracy even though she defended a genocide? Now, on the other side of the coin, you look at uh, General Ming who was overseeing the military during this time of genocide and it's really looking at, at two sides of the same coin and wondering which side is actually actually has the moral high ground. But we're not going to focus much longer on actually what's happening inside of Myanmar and the power struggle between the, the, the Democratic Party of the NDL and the military. But instead, I want to look at why this is so important. Why is the world so caught up in who is in charge of this tiny little plot of land in Myanmar? Well, in order to do that, all we have to do is look at a map. If you were to pull out your map and find Myanmar on Google Maps, you would see that it's nestled right on the Indian Ocean between Thailand to its east, China to its north, you have Laos as well to its east, and then to its west, you have India and Bangladesh. But what's most important is to the south, you have the Indian Sea. And why is this important? Well, this is very important to China, and this is very important to India and Philippines and Taiwan, Japan, 
Australia, because whoever controls that sea and whoever controls the South China Sea controls trade. And if you can control trade, well, then you have great economic and military power throughout the world. So what China is trying to do right now is expand their trade corridors. So China has a Russian-Mongolia trade corridor where they have a corridor through Mongolia into Russia. They have the new Eurasian land bridge, which also goes up to the northwest into Russia and Europe. You have the traditional Silk Road, which is what made China famous uh, all those centuries ago, the Silk Road, which cuts straight across Central Asia. And then you have the uh, China-Pakistan corridor, where that gives China also access to the, the Sea of Oman. And you have the, the strait along the east, the South China Sea, excuse me, which is a huge trade route. And most importantly for our conversation today, you have the Myanmar corridor, which is a, a train line and a gas and oil pipeline that cuts straight through Myanmar into the Indian Sea. And this is very critical. It is called the China-Myanmar Economic Corridor or the CMEC. And China has been working to secure these trade routes for quite some time because if they can secure these, then they can secure global Dominance. Now, in the past four years, Australia, India, Japan, and America have come together to form what is being called as the Quad. Now, the Quad comes about in an effort to try to deter China's ability to challenge and disrupt the rules based order and the status quo in the Indo Pacific region, said Herve. The Mahia, who is the director of the Power and Diplomacy Program at the Sydney-based Lowry Institute. It is a signaling on the part of these four democracies that they are and they would get even more serious about acting as a military and strategic counterweight to China if Beijing were to continue to challenge the status quo, not just in the South China Sea, but also the Indian Ocean. We haven't heard very much about the Quad versus China in the last year due to the global happenings and global shakings that we've all been so focused on, but China is on the move. We can see it in their stance with Taiwan over the last year, the, the protest for democracy in Hong Kong and China stepping into Hong Kong. We see it along the China India border where there's been conflict. Andrew Koriboko, an expert on what's happening in Myanmar currently, shares how in the past year, the Chinese Coast Guard rammed and sank a Vietnamese fishing boat in the South China Sea. Later, there was a standoff between a Malaysian oil exploration vessel and a Chinese survey vessel off of Malaysia's Borneo, which prompted the U.S. and Australia to deploy warships to the area. The Philippines, Malaysia, Vietnam, and Taiwan all lay claim 
to parts of the energy-rich waters in the South China Sea, but Beijing, which claims almost the entire area in the decades-old Nine-Dash Line, has been extending its reach by building military bases on reefs and rocky outcrops. All that to say, China is looking to expand and solidify and secure their trade routes. And we know that Myanmar is an important section of land. So what is the logical conclusion? Who is manipulating what? Who is on whose side? Well, my first conclusion, which seemed to me to be perfectly logical, which, uh, spoiler alert, if it's perfectly logical, it probably isn't actually perfectly logical, would be that China must have wanted Aung San Suu Kyi gone. Because if you get her gone, well, then you can ensure that you have the ability to reach the Indian Ocean and secure your trade routes across the world. And with that, the assumption would go that, well, China does not like democracy. Uh, India, America, Japan, Australia, they do like democracy. So they're on her side and they probably want her to stay and want the military gone because then she will help be a counterbalance to China. But Remember when Miss Aung San Suu Kyi defended the Rohingya genocide? She fell from the graces of the West. And when she did that, she had to turn somewhere. And she turned to China as an ally. So as it turns out, it would actually make more sense. This is so ironic. I can't believe this. It would make more sense that the West and that India and that Australia would want her gone because she has sided with China and General Ming. He has actually has a great distrust for China and he has actually worked in before the full-on democracy happened in 2015, he worked tirelessly to rid themselves from dependency on China. According to chinanews.net.au, they write this, Chinese businessmen may fret over the future of commitments made and deals struck with Aung San Suu Kyi's now ousted National League for Democracy's government. Beijing had cozied up to her and her party before the coup because its policymakers and business groups found it easier to deal with them than the staunchly nationalistic military known as the Tatmadaw. Dao. A previous military regime had initiated certain reforms aimed at more openness and Western involvement. After a gradual democratic transition that started in 2010 elections in order to reduce the nation's dependence on China. But after the West turned their backs on the Myanmar government after the Rohingya refugee crisis in 2016 through 2017, Suu Kyi, a politician who needed foreign assistance and investment, 
to deliver on her election promise of economic progress had little to no choice but to turn to Beijing. My, how the cookie crumbles. It is not as clear-cut as it would seem. You would think that China would be against the, the forms of democracy and that the West would be for it. But when you look at the actual politics underneath the banners, underneath the banners of military and democracy, you actually see that the, the side of democracy was actually much more pro-China, which seems to be counterintuitive because right now um, the West and everyone is supporting, at least openly supporting, uh, Sanjan. <sighs> what it comes down to is that China does not want to lose relationship and power with Myanmar. And they're largely remaining neutral, saying that they just want to let Myanmar work out their problems, which is what most other nations like Cambodia and Thailand and the region is saying. This is an eternal internal issue. Let them work it out on their own. Whereas other countries such as India or America is, is threatening sanctions against Myanmar and calling it a coup, whereas China and Russia are blocking this language of coup and saying actually it was within the constitutional rights of the military and they followed their constitutional laws. So was it an illegal coup? Which leaves General Ming nowhere to turn except to China, because they're the only people that are really backing him, even though he has a high distrust for China. Now, when superpowers get into the mix in this day and age, we, of course, have to talk about the ultra superpower that is Facebook. That's right. Facebook decided that they are the arbitrators of truth and justice all across the world, irregardless of governments and constitutions. And they are the ones who get to say what is true and what is false. So after all this happened and, and the, the alleged coup happened, Facebook decided to deplatform the page for the Myanmar's military TV network on the basis that it quote unquote spread misinformation that delegitimized the outcome of November's election. Despite them having no right to arbitrate in a foreign country's domestic policy dispute especially since the recently announced state of emergency was legally implemented with accordance of chapter 11 of the 2008 Myanmar constitution, despite some abroad wrongly considering it to be an illegal coup, writes Andrew Koyborg. This sounds like a surprisingly familiar story where Google and Facebook and Twitter have donned themselves as the arbiters of truth, not only in America, but now across the world, India, Uganda, and now Myanmar, where they are the ones who get to decide what misinformation is. They are the ones that get to decide when a government breaks or upholds their own constitution, even when 
they are operating within the realms of that constitution. Andrew Cory Boko, who we tried to get on the show, but it was uh, sadly tied up, writes this. A few disturbing conclusions can be made from Facebook's defense of its censorship policy in Myanmar. First is that the company believes that it has a self-appointed right to arbitrate in a foreign country's domestic political dispute. Second, it subjectively regards one side's view towards the situation as misinformation and content that could incite further tensions at this time. Sounds familiar. Third, Facebook doesn't hold this position towards members of the formerly ruling National League for Democracy, who are publicly calling for the people to defy the legally implemented state of emergency that was carried out in accordance with Chapter 11 of the 2008 Constitution. Fourth, despite being a private social media giant, the company is tactically abiding by its host government's policies of not recognizing the legality of recent events and promising some sort of punishment for what happened. Fifth, all of this amounts to meddling in the international affairs of a sovereign state and it's intended to shape the course of its political development there. The question that you and I should ask and why it is significant to you and I in this hour is because do we want, do we want platforms like Twitter or Facebook to be able to shape and mold the outcomes of nations all across the world? Is that a position that we are okay with them having? And if it is, my question is, you might be on the right side of their history books today, but what happens when tomorrow comes? Don't go away. We will be right back with our closing Weaver and Loom segment. Welcome back to Weaver and Loom, a segment of the show where we take ancient quotes and we weave them in with our everyday life so that we can own our future and weave our destinies. Today's quote is a one that I think of often. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I was thinking of this quote as I was working through this episode because I was realizing that it's not always clear cut, such as this instance with Myanmar. It's it's highly layered in complex situation. And one large region, reason I believe that the world is so involved is because of the power struggle between China and America, what and China, the world, India, uh, Japan, Australia, and America, as that counterbalance, as the, the quad versus China. But with that, what I find fascinating and curious is who is on whose side really? Is the West really on the side of democracy, or was the West 
seeking to destabilize a nation so that they could destabilize China's pipeline, so that they could destabilize China's trade route. Because it seems as though that the the people that really benefit from this quote-unquote alleged coup is the West, is, is America, is India, is Australia, is Japan, because that causes a leader to come to power who is not favorable to China and may act as a wedge and another counterbalance against China. But then you could also say, well, the other side, it could always play out to China's gain because now General Ming is being forced into the arms of China because he will have nowhere else to go. And the reason that I, I brought this quote up, where faithful are the wounds of a friend and profuse are the kisses of an enemy, is we can't always trust the people who are praising us and who are kissing us, who are always saying good things about us. We might think, wait, those, those people who are profusely praising me and, and singing my praises, they actually might be the enemy. And our friends actually might be the people who are calling out our shortcomings and our weaknesses, who are criticizing us and pushing us to become better and stronger people. But if we do not have the wherewithal to understand the bigger things that are at play in the world around us, we might miss out on who our friends really are. We might be offended at a friend who wounds us thinking that they should always praise us, they should always pat us on our back, they should always have our side, when really there are many times in life when friends seem to not have your side because they actually care about the ultimate outcome of your life. That is all for this episode. Thank you for listening. Please, if you have a question, WhatsApp me at plus one two zero two nine two two zero two two zero. I would love to answer it. Also, I'm on Clubhouse. Come find me on Clubhouse. It has been a great place to connect with people in one-on-one conversations. If you have a question, look me up there as well. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes, please tell one of your friends. Tell a friend, WhatsApp them, text them, DM them, walk over to their house and say, you have to listen to this. It would mean so much to me. Remember, you are a truth seeker, one that seeks to see all sides, seeks to see the overarching strategies and the underlying intentions and motivations in the world around you so that you can go out, find your purpose, and own your future. 